أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad And the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum Brothers, sisters, respected viewers Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh And welcome once again to our series Life, the Islamic Answer so, inshallah, today, given that in the last lecture we did a bit of a recap uh, and an overview with some additions or complementing nuances to what we've been covering, uh, today, inshallah, we can continue where we left off, which is with the ingredients of the uh, effective learner or for effective learning in Islam. If you'll remember, we are at the topic of seizing the opportunity of our youth and so we already made a number of i think a large number of points related to this uh, topic so we won't repeat those we'll just build on them so our first hadith is from the holy prophet in which he says so the Holy Prophet says, In the beginning of this nation, its young ones will learn from its older ones. And in the end, its older ones will learn from its younger ones. And so there's an addition. This hadith is, is narrated by Ibn Abbas. So people asked Ibn Abbas, قِيلَ وَكَيْفَ ذَلِكَ يَا Abbas? So the answer he gives, قَالْ تَعَلَّمَ الصِّغَارِ وَلَمْ uh, it's very logical, normal answer that he gives. It was said, how was that? He said, because the young ones learned and the old ones, older ones did not. So they will need or they needed uh, them for their knowledge. Okay, so a first point here is the importance of knowledge and the importance of Maybe let's look at it from the other side. The importance of expertise or experience in life cannot be underestimated. Okay, this is not to say that someone can learn something in theory and not go through life and still think that they have a full knowledge of that thing. Okay, we definitely recognize the value of life experience, of going through life, experiencing things, and how much that can add to the knowledge that we have. Okay, but still in a hadith like these, we see the importance of knowledge itself to the point where the Holy Prophet is saying that in the end of times or in the latter part of the history of this nation, it will be the older people in the community who will have to learn or who will be learning from the younger people in the community. So this should not be the normal state of affairs. So there's definitely something that stands out here. So this is, first of all, definitely in line with what we've been talking about, which is when it comes to knowledge, the criteria is knowledge. So everything else becomes secondary, including social status, including age. Uh, so in that type of community, in that type of world socially, Age was a very important factor. I'm not going to say that it's unheard of, but it was not the norm, or it kind of stands out for people that someone of an older age would sit and learn from someone who is of a younger age. And yet the Holy Prophet is talking about it as though this is something that should naturally happen. Okay? And so here again, as always, the criteria is knowledge. Everything else becomes secondary. Knowledge is its own criteria. And that's what we've been talking about from the beginning, that we, as good believers, are meant to follow knowledge and seek knowledge and take it from wherever and whomever we find it. Okay? And this is the second part. I'm not going to comment too much on this right now, but I think this is where maybe we need to bring it back to the framing that we put around this entire uh, first topic or first theme in our series, which is knowledge, when we began with this idea of the knowledge societies in which we live today. 
in one way we could say you know this is just humanity evolving in general but we could just look at our own lifetimes and even our own generations and i'm sure for all of you if you look at your own life and you see the generation coming up right after you you can see that the pace of change today is accelerating so that in my time it was slower than it was for the generation after me or after mine and so on and so forth and so this also means that it's not so much a uh, clear-cut category you know don't label yourself as being of this or that generation this becomes an additional reason an additional argument for us the more we realize the pace of change that is happening the more we need to be aware of it and do something about it so this is an incentive for me as someone being older. It becomes an incentive for me to go and look for someone who is younger and go learn from them. They're going through something different and they're learning at a faster pace. They're exposed to things that I was perhaps not exposed to and the pace of change is faster than it was in my time. So I need to make an additional effort that they don't even need to make because they're growing up in it. But I have to go out of my way to go learn what they now are exposed to, what they are learning, to see what is valid, to see what is new that I may not have in my uh, you know, experience and uh, what I've been exposed to until now in knowledge. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet again, he says, so here you're going to see all of these hadith initially, to be honest with you, I was going to keep them for the, 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 the subheading of community. We said all of these are going to lead us to the notion of a community of knowledge. But the community of knowledge has been a running theme throughout since we started talking about this idea of transformational knowledge and the learner. We've seen all sorts of references to a hadith that are clearly, if they were to be followed, would lead to, would create a community of knowledge, community of people who are centered around learning knowledge, sharing knowledge, circulating, generating knowledge, and so on and so forth. So this is definitely one of those hadith where you see that in the community, regardless of the age, the important thing is knowledge. And so people will gather and they will take it from whomever they can get it from, regardless of age, for instance. Okay, so th there's definitely a link there. And you will see that again in the, in the next hadith as well. So the next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, مَنْ لَمْ يَطْلُبِ الْعِلْمَ صغيرة. So we saw the opposite. We saw a hadith from Imam Ali السلام, from the Holy Prophet, in which he was saying how important it is to learn uh, at the, the earliest age possible okay here we're saying the opposite the holy prophet is saying what if someone did not learn when they were at a young age so we could focus on the negative and say well they did not do the right thing or 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 what we said there is this is not an excuse we said that someone who reaches a certain age should not say well it's too late for me or I no longer need knowledge at this point in my life. I should have learned it when I was 10 or 15 or 30. And now I'm past that age. I no longer need it. It's not relevant for me. It's not useful. I'm too old. I can't learn. No, we said that's not acceptable. It's the exact opposite that we find in the hadith with a very clear instruction, with a very clear uh, or strong I'm going to say order, command from the Holy Prophet in our religion to still learn even if you are, alaykum assalam rahmatullah, even if you are of an older age. And so this is one of these narrations. The Holy Prophet he says, مَنْ لَمْ يَطْلُبِ الْعِلْمَ صَغِيرًا فَطَلَبَهُ كَبِيرًا فَمَاتْ مَاتَ شَهِيدًا So if someone does not seek knowledge in their youth, but they seek it in old age, then this person dies in this state of learning, then this person has died a martyr. He will die or she will die a martyr. So first of all, again, clearly the notion of community, so we don't emphasize that. Secondly, there is here implied in this hadith clearly a recognition that there is an additional struggle. There is less of a struggle to learn, to seek knowledge and to learn knowledge when you are younger. Okay, it comes much more naturally. This person is going out of their way. So there is an additional struggle to learn knowledge. Okay, so there's a recognition 
that there is a, an additional struggle. And therefore, uh, alongside the recognition that there is more struggle, there will also be the required tawab from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. More struggle equals more tawab. And so this person who is now an, at an older age and they are still going out of their way to learn, to acquire knowledge, to seek knowledge, they, they are definitely going through, let's call it a social struggle, right? That they are of an older age and yet they are going against a stigma if there is one in their community, socially. This person is older, learning from younger folks, okay? So that's one. There's a social dimension and there's also an, let's call it an intellectual dimension. They may not have the same ability to learn and to memorize uh, and to move and progress as fast as when they were younger, when they were learning. And they feel that. And sometimes that is enough for someone to say, it's too much work for me. I need to sit and study and I could be spending my time elsewhere, especially when I'm older. But this person is not. And so the Holy Prophet says, this person for going out of their way and learning even when they are at an older age this person if they die in that state they die a martyr they die a shaheed they have the reward of someone who is a shaheed so first of all clearly there is no too late okay and that that's the point we made but we did not back it up with the hadith so here are a few of the hadith this is one and we'll see a couple more someone should never say it is too late i don't i no longer need to learn that does not exist in our religion, okay? That's the first point here. The second point is the condition that the Holy Prophet says for this person to achieve this status is that they die in this state. Well, all of us can die on that state, right? This could apply to all of us. Any knowledge that we could be learning, we could continue to learn until we die. There is no point at which we say, I have enough, I have sufficient knowledge in any field. It doesn't stop. There's always more to learn. So the point here is that we should never fall into the trap of thinking that I should now be content with the knowledge that I have. I should be happy and satisfied. I have enough about, especially we're talking now about religious knowledge. Okay, So long as you stay in that state where you are craving it, where you have that hunger to continue to, or that curiosity to continue to learn, the day you die, whenever that is, whether it's at 20 or 40 or 150, if you die in that state, you are dying a martyr. And so this should, in addition to what it's saying directly, it should also back up that whole discussion that we had about a good Muslim should have as part of their normal routine schedule some sort of time dedicated to seeking knowledge, right? Regardless of their age. So that's a, a hadith. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, لا يستحي الشيخ أن يتعلم العلم كما لا يستحي أن يأكل الخبز. So the Holy Prophet ﷺ says, let not the old man be ashamed to learn ashamed of learning as he is not ashamed to eating bread so it may seem strange to say it that way but the holy prophet is making a point he's saying that something like eating bread is considered very trivial very normal no one would think about it twice it does not stand out it's been normalized it's very regular knowledge seeking should be the same and so this is an, in, certainly for someone who is an older age, when the Holy Prophet says, let this old man, a sheikh, so someone who is a senior, someone who is much older, let them seek knowledge and let that become something as normal to them and in the community as someone who is eating bread. Is there anything special about eating bread? No. So seeking knowledge should be in the same line. It should not be something that stands out. People should not take notice, oh, this is someone older, you know, sitting and learning with younger people or from a younger teacher and so on and so forth. The next hadith, لا يستحي شيخ أن يجلس إلى جنب الشاب فيتعلم منه العلم 
And this is perhaps the part that is implied or not mentioned in the previous one. But it's not said, so it could be open to interpretation. This hadith confirms what the issue is about. It's not just that you are learning while you are of an older age. But in a lot of cases, when you reach an older age, you're most likely going to be older than the person teaching. And the person teaching may be someone who is much younger. So the Holy Prophet says, لا يستحي شيخ أن يجلس إلى جنب الشاب فيتعلم منه العلم. Let not the old man be ashamed to sit before a young man to acquire knowledge from him. So it's not that you're sitting, you're older, and you're sitting beside a younger person and both of you are learning. No, you are learning from a much younger person. So that's an additional layer. And the Holy Prophet here makes it very clear. Let that never become a source of shame, a source of embarrassment, a reason or an excuse for you not to learn. Okay? So, And we've talked, I think, enough about this. And again, very quickly, without any commentary, again, think about the notion of community of knowledge. Okay, if, you, if this is what we applied in a community, would this not lead to a community of knowledge? Okay, where the priority is the knowledge acquisition and the knowledge seeking and not so much these very secondary uh, considerations. Okay, in that same vein of the community building, although it's not directly related to the youth here, notice this hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, أَتَى نِسَاءٌ إِلَىٰ بَعْضِ نِسَاءٍ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وآله فحدثناها فقالت لرسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله إِمْنَهَا أُولَاءِ نِسْوَةٌ جِئْنَ يَسْأَلْنَكَ عَنْ شَيْءٍ يَسْتَحْيِينَ مِنْ ذِكْرِهِ قال لِيَسْأَلْنَ عَمَّا شِئْنَ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ So Imam Ali alayhi salam says, some woman came to one of the women of the Holy Prophet. So it could be his daughter, one of his wives of the Holy Prophet to speak to her. So she came and she told the Holy Prophet, these women have come to ask you about certain matters, but they are too shy to mention it, to mention it to you, to ask those things. So he replied, let them ask whatever they want, for God is not shy from the truth. And so this is something that we know this is something that we generally know in our religion but it's just again to highlight the link with the community what type of community was the Holy Prophet trying to build Okay, so the importance of asking the importance of learning clear in this hadith the importance of overcoming shyness of overcoming embarrassment is also clear in this hadith okay and we know in addition to just maybe there's a social dimension, but sometimes there's also a religious dimension to this shyness or embarrassment because we've been told that this is kind of a taboo topic. There's stigma around it. You don't question certain things. You don't ask questions about them. You don't uh, ask in a way as though you are confused about it because you're not allowed to not know or have doubt or so on and so forth, right? So here are these these types of narrations. There are many. And we're going to continue to see other ones as, as the series progresses, that there is absolutely nothing that is too taboo or too stigmatized in our religion to question so long as you are trying to learn. So long as you are sincere in trying to learn, you can ask about anything you want to ask about. And we're going to talk more about that, inshallah, in the future. And of course, here the participation of everyone in the community is be becoming clear. The Holy Prophet talks about the youth and the old and the women and the men and so on and so forth. Everyone in the community is part of this knowledge cycle that is going on. So that's kind of the end, inshallah, to that ingredient of youth. So we've, we've discussed it for a couple of lectures, inshallah. We can move to the next one. The next ingredient for effective learning is the ingredient of motivation and initially again I was not really thinking of adding it as one of the ingredients because the truth is the whole series uh, has an undertone of motivation okay and you know one way or another indirectly or directly I think there is definitely a life coaching component to this series Okay, inshallah, that is clear enough. But in order to do that, therefore, there is a constant 
pushed to, you know, it's it's meant to inspire and lead to action all the time, right? Every lecture has to have a certain dose of, so how do I take this and go and do something? I can't just not do anything after I have listened to this and thought about it. Okay, so I didn't think that we definitely necessarily need to discuss it specifically, the, the theme of motivation, but I thought I think it's important enough, especially since sometimes when something is very obvious, you don't notice it because it's too obvious, it's too present. Okay, so at least this hadith from the imam, and I thought this is a hadith that summarizes very well a lot of what we have been talking about in a few very quick, very short words from Imam al-Sadiq salam. So Imam al-Sadiq says, alayhi salam, المتعلم يحتاج إلى رغبة وإرادة وفراغ ونسك وخشية وحفظ وحزم. And that's the hadith. So the Imam says, the learner needs, and then he lists a number of items. If you want to be a good learner, then you have to check off these boxes. This is what a learner needs. A learner needs ragbah. They need a desire. They need a will. They need a dedicated time or a dedication. Okay, they need a piety. And here, we could interpret it in different ways. The, the, the nusk. Okay, I'm just going to translate it as piety and I'm going to come back to it. And they need fear. And they need fear. And learning or memorization. And I'm going to comment on that too. And and determination. Okay, so let's go through them very quickly. The first thing is, the imam says, the learner needs a desire. Here that, that could be a whole topic, especially when you look at the next the next item on the list where he says irada. Irada is your will. And at the end he says hazm, so determination. Okay, so will and determination, they're about your discipline, your resilience, your perseverance, your ability to plow through with something that has struggle and difficulty in it. Great. But what about this desire? This is why we've been talking about, this is the motivation. There's something inside of you that has to push you towards these things. This is not something that can come from the outside. You can feed it more from the outside. But at the end of the day, the motivation has to come from within. There has to be something that moves you towards seeking knowledge. Otherwise, even if you do seek knowledge, you will stop very quickly. You will do it for a little while and then you'll stop. Because it doesn't. there's nothing that keeps you going. Okay? Knowledge seeking in itself, that's a whole topic, inshallah, we'll, maybe we'll mention it, I don't know if we're going to talk about a few books that talk about these topics. In anything, if you go to, to today's uh, very, very dense and, and rich literature on these topics, there's a topic or there's a field that emerged called neurolinguistic programming. Okay, and they use that a lot for anything that has to do, for instance, with uh, motivating people, with helping someone break away with bad habits, overcoming addiction, uh, generating uh, confidence in themselves. And how do they do that? They say that a lot of what we do and our outlook on life is dependent on the words that we associate and therefore the ideas that we associate with something, with an experience. The issue is that when you think about something that has difficulty, and a lot, a lot in most cases, it's because of our life experience until now. Sometimes it's direct experience, so things that I have lived through. In some cases, it's not that I have lived through. Someone else has lived through, but I know of it enough that this has created a certain image in my mind of that thing. And so when I think about that thing, I may focus on the negative. I may focus on the, the difficult part, the pain, the loss, the sacrifice, whatever it may be. If this is what I think about and how I feel about that thing, then I'm not going to proceed to act in any situation that puts me in that negative light. So what do they do in neuro-linguistic programming? What they try to do is to take that same word 
and therefore that same notion and experience, but change the association from something negative to something positive. A lot of, a lot of things in life, they come with a risk, they come with a danger, they come with a price, with a sacrifice, with a pain, something that you have to put in in order to reap the benefits of it. If you focus, if you stay focused on the negative, nothing will ever get done. And that's why a lot of people live in a lack of confidence or in fear, and they never move to act on something. They prefer the status quo. They prefer to stay away, not to put themselves at risk, and so on and so forth. All you need to do for that is focus on the negative. And we're not saying become delusional and forget the negative. We're saying focus on the positive. There's a price you're paying, but you're getting something greater at the end. That is worth it and more. So what they try to do in these areas is that they turn your attention from the negative to the positive. If you see the positive, if you see the gain, that creates motivation in you. And of course, there's all sorts of techniques with that, that you have to visualize, you have to see, you have to sense. It's almost like you're living the benefit that you're talking about. And this is exactly what happens for, I don't know, a very simple example. Someone going to the gym, for instance. If you focus on the pain and the effort and the sore muscles and the time it requires and the effort to go to the gym and so on and so forth, you'll never go. But there has to be, for someone to actually go there, then there has to be some sort of benefit. Two people are looking at the same thing. One person will say, um, I'm, I don't feel like going. Or one day they may go and one day they may not. They are oscillating between these two states. One state in which they are focusing on the negative and one state in which they are focusing on the positive. So it makes them act. Okay, A lot of the topic of motivation falls in this line. So this means that to a very large extent, it is kind of within your control. If it's something that you know you should be doing and you're lacking the motivation to do it, maybe you're just not putting the light in the right thing. You're focusing on the negative instead of the positive. That's why the Imam starts by saying, in order to be a learner, the first thing you need is desire, a motivation, an internal motivation. And then the Imam says, and the will. The will means that you are now going to have the strength and the resilience to actually go through with it, the discipline to go through with it. Where does that discipline come from? That I'm still going to go through with it even though it's difficult. It comes from the desire. It comes from the motivation. It comes, it comes from now that I have focused on the positive, I can actually go through with it. It's going to give me the energy. It's going to give me the resilience. It's going to give me the will and the determination that the Imam is mentioning. Okay? So... And then the Imam says, and the will, so inshallah this part is clear, that the will is not coming, is not happening in a vacuum. The will means that I'm going to go through with it, I need something that is going to fuel me to go through with it, and usually that's a desire, that's your motivation. Otherwise you will run out of steam. You'll run out of fuel to continuously go through with it if there's nothing motivating you internally. Okay, so just by saying will and determination, there's a recognition that there's a struggle, that there's a difficulty that you have to go through. And then the Imam said, وَفَرَاغ So, in other words, تَفَرَّغ In other words, dedication. You need to free up time. You need to free up energy so that you can put it to knowledge seeking. And then he says, وَنُسْكِ So I translated it as piety. Just to try to cover the different interpretations that it can give. So on one side, this nusk, someone who is nasik could be interpreted, for instance, as a monk or a recluse, someone who secludes themselves to do something, to perform something. They stay away. So the imam is either saying this is someone who is so committed to learning so dedicated to learning that they stay away from certain things to the point where you might say this person is a recluse. Okay. Or because of the next 
list uh, item on the list that the imam is giving when he says wanusk wa khashya and he doesn't qualify the khashya he just says wa khashya but we know that the imam is talking about god fearing he's not just talking about fear he's talking about god fearing he's talking about taqwa so this is another dimension to learning you want to be a true learner according to the definition of imam sadiq salam you have to have the desire and the will and the dedication and you have to have wanusk. So here, either you say, I dedicate myself to learning to the point where I'm somewhat considered of a recluse or this is someone who has a high level of worship. This is someone to whom piety is very important. This commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is important. And this is what we see with the next item, wakhashya. The Imam here is talking about a different kind or a different dimension to what you're learning. That this learning is bringing you closer to God. And your worship makes you a better learner. Your association with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your God-fearing, your piety, makes you a more effective learner, a better learner. And then the Imam says, وَحِفْظ Hifz here could be either the Imam is saying learning or memorizing or this, this person has on one side we could say it's the result of hard work or we could say this is something innate. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed this person with a great memory. That's the other way to understand this. So memory, okay, wahazm and determination. These, to me, when I put them together, it's as though the imam is saying, if we interpret this as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed someone with a great memory, with a great ability to understand, we're going to say that talent alone is not enough. When we look at all of these ingredients that the imam gave us, you can be the person with the highest IQ, the most intelligence, a great memory. That is not enough to be a good learner, according to Imam Sadiq You need another dimension, or two other dimensions. So you may have your innate skill set and your, your innate talents, that's great. You need more. What else do you need? You need hard work and determination. And resilience. So that's another dimension. Neither one of these is enough on its own. What if you combine them together? Is that enough? The Imam says, and this is why we think our knowledge seeking is different and special. The Imam says, no, that's still not enough. You need a third dimension. And that is God-fearing. That's your taqwa. That's your association with God. That's not just about the theory and the information that you amass. It has to lead to a better relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That together, those three together are going to make you a great learner according to Imam al-Sadiq And again, every time I, I read a hadith from Imam al-Sadiq I say, imagine yourselves as being in his university, in his time, amongst the thousands of thousands of students who sat before him. Very different from the other imams who did not have those conditions, those circumstances to allow them to teach. And so to me when the Imam is talking, he's really talking to people who are trying to become the best of the best of the learners, of the students, to become the scholars. Those who attended the lectures of Imam Sadiq they were the scholars of Islam. So when he's giving them this, these are the people who are competing at the highest level of knowledge in Islam. And he's giving them these ingredients, I would say, in a very formal context of learning, okay? To be taken seriously. This is not trivial. This is not said informally, okay? So up to here, the ingredients that we looked at, there is, I think, a very good understanding of them, inshallah. I think they're clear enough, and we spent a good time good amount of time on most of them explaining them I thought it would be interesting to highlight a few specifically from one angle 
which is that in today's world, people who are connected to, in today's society, in today's culture, you will see that many of the ingredients, I'm not going to say all, many of the ingredients we spoke about until now, they are ingredients upon which there is a huge focus in today's world. But where do you find it? You find it in the in the world where people are trying to perform at a higher level. You find it in the self-help, self-motivation world. And you find it in the corporate world. So things like the importance of dedication, the importance of being single-minded and focused, the laser focus, the importance of starting early, the importance of not being distracted, dedication and sacrifice and hunger, being hungrier for it than everybody else and be willing to put in the hard work and the time and the hours and because you're going to reap the benefits of that and don't be like the 95 or 98 or 99% of the people. You have to be the 1% or less. But to do that, you have to put in the work and the energy and the sacrifice and so on and so forth. The importance of patience, perseverance, seizing the opportunities. Each one of these, I'm going to say, is a whole niche today in these fields. So I thought I would highlight very quickly a few books. Those are the ones that I have read, okay, that I could go through as a quick list to highlight some of the points that they make in those books. And inshallah, from there, we'll draw a few conclusions at the end, and I'll try to finish so that we wrap it up. I thought we would start the next topic today, but we'll wrap it up with that. Okay, so very quickly, we'll go through all of these. So inshallah, you have in mind the ingredients that we have gone through. We went through 10, 12 ingredients until now to be an effective learner in Islam. Okay, so... One of these ingredients was food. We talked in the last couple of lectures, we spoke about a link, an association between the empty stomach and knowledge, or the empty stomach and wisdom, if you remember. There's a book called The Mind-Gut Connection, 2016, okay, by Emeran Meyer. In this book, he explains that the gut is like a second brain. He says it's a sensory organ. And he spends the time in the book to explain how the things that we feel in our gut are things that are going to be reflected in our emotions and moods and thinking. And the opposite. Our thinking and our mood and our emotional state is going to affect what happens in our gut so it's a two-way street i'm not the point of this is not to go through the books because each one of these books we could spend a whole lecture on okay i just thought i'd highlight some of the important or interesting points they make in those books okay and so of course i thought it's also very interesting he they talk the the emran meyer uh, he talks about uh, for instance, the in, therefore, the importance of customizing your diet once you know yourself and how you think and how you behave and your stress levels and so on and so forth. Okay, and there are a lot of, of course, a lot of examples to make their case. And this is all very, very rigorous science. Okay, this is coming from the medical world. There's a few more books in the same vein. I'll mention a couple of them. The idea here, though, is he also makes a point to say that the importance of trusting our gut feeling. When we have our gut feeling, so we say there's something instinctive that you feel about something, about someone or in a certain situation. But for that to be the case, you have to be healthy enough. Your gut has to be healthy and your mind has to be healthy. Then your gut feeling is not random. There's a reason why you have a gut feeling about something. Okay? In any case, that's a whole discussion that I thought was very important in that book and perhaps very in line with what we are talking about. The connection with the empty stomach and knowledge-seeking, the empty stomach and wisdom. Okay, there's another book, This Is Your Brain on Food, by Uma Naido. She tries to focus on mental health or mental well-being and what's in our gut. 
the food that we eat. Okay, so in this one, I think there's also what was interesting to me in that book based on what we were talking about is making sure we understand that everything that is happening in the day, especially if you want to be healthy and happy in the day, a lot of it has to do with what's happening at night. How well do you sleep? Your melatonin level. Okay? And so this is the, the whole topic. We've mentioned it in the past, the circadian cycle, the cycle of sleep and waking up that we all have. Well, depending on what you eat, you're going to really affect that cycle. How well do you sleep? How deep do you sleep? What time are you sleeping? What are you eating to help your sleep so that you can function better and feel better emotionally and otherwise mental health throughout the rest of the day? Okay, very interesting, I thought, to highlight those. An older book, but in that same vein, there was a book called The Second Brain. So The Second Brain by Michael uh, Gershon, it's a 1999 book, so it's an older book. The same idea, that what is happening in your gut is directly affecting what is happening in your brain. Your, your brain's ability to think, your brain's ability to analyze the world, to comprehend the world, and so on and so forth, is deeply affected by what you're putting in. That's called the, uh, the microbiome, everything that's going on in your gut. Okay, and there's a few more books. I'll just mention them very quickly, all on the same line. There's The Good Gut. There is a book called The Food Therapist. There's a book called How We Eat With Our Eyes and Think With Our Stomachs, and so on and so forth. So that's one ingredient that we talked about and a couple of books that have to do with it. The, another ingredient we talked about was time management, and we focused in our hadith, we really focused on starting as early as possible in the day and building our schedule around prayer times, which means for us that our day starts with Fajr, or even before, or at least with Fajr. Okay, so I thought I at least had to begin with the 5 a.m. club. So that's a very known book. So at least I'll mention that by uh, Robin Sharma. So he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer until 25, so he started very early. And then he felt that he was very unhappy, and he's not getting what he wants out of this career, so he gave up all of that, and he rethought his life, and then he came back and he became a dedicated writer and a speaker, and now he has a whole enterprise of public speaking and writing. He's written a, more than a dozen books. Um, uh, what is that book called? The the Monk Who Sold His Ferrari and other books in that same line. Okay, so you see definitely that there is a spiritual component to what he went through. And therefore he brings that back into all of his writing and all of his thinking. And he teaches that a lot. Okay, the whole, the whole He has a whole series of books all on that same theme of that monk and the wisdom that that monk has and so on and so forth. Okay, so... The book is basically done in this way. So there's this billionaire who uh, attributes all of his success to one habit. And that habit is that he starts his days at 5 a.m. Okay, so uh, the book begins. There's, there are people, they, they meet each other. And so he tells them that there are uh, extraordinary people throughout history. And one of the most common things that you find in these extraordinary people throughout history is that they had a very similar early morning routine, including how early they woke up, okay? And that's where uh, the whole premise of the book begins, okay? So I'll go through the chapters very quickly. He says that the normal way that most people are going to start their day is that you're going to start preoccupied. Why? Because you're starting your day with everyone. So you're already in the frenetic life cycle or routine of the day. Okay, and this is, of course, it also has to do with what you're being exposed to and what you see. You start with your emails, you see the news, and so on and so forth. So as soon as you start your day, you're already behind. Okay, you're just reacting to things, and you don't have any time for preparing yourself for what's going to happen. So you can't focus because you're stressed. You start the day stressed, and 
This drains a lot of energy so that by the time that you reach midday or lunch for most people, you're completely depleted. The majority of your energy is gone by then. Okay, so the idea is that by waking up earlier, but making sure that waking up earlier is equal to having less stress during that time that you've added to your day. That's the idea, that you are going to do things that are going to much better prepare you for the rest of the day. And physically, what that means is that you're going to release different kinds of hormones. As opposed to releasing adrenaline, you're going to release serotonin, and you're going to release happy hormones, right? Hormones that are going to make you in a very different mood to tackle the day. That's the idea of the book. Okay, so, um, or dopamine, I only mentioned serotonin. Okay, so you want to be elite, therefore you have to be willing to put in a little bit of sacrifice to be part of that 5%, for instance, even though 95% of the people are going to say they prefer to sleep or sleep in a little bit more in the morning. So then he talks about what he calls history makers. Those people who changed history, they really focused on the things that they had talents in, that they were special in, that they could capitalize on. But this also requires that you free yourself from distractions. So this is a theme that we talked about, this focus, not multitasking, right? Single-minded focus. So he says you free yourself from the distractions of relationships, of social media, of addictions, and so on and so forth. And that all starts in the day, early in the day, and how you're going to create a domino effect early in the morning. Okay, and so he talks about the purist versus the multitasker. So he calls this person the purist. And he says the purists are the ones who are going to own history. They're going to go down in history as people who achieved great things, not the ones who were multitasking or scattered all the time. Okay. So how do we achieve that? He talks about day stacking. So day stacking is nothing, it's just a fancy word for consistency. Instead of trying to achieve great results and huge wins, he says we have to focus on very incremental small steps. You day stack them. Every day you add a little bit more to what you achieved the day before. You don't go for big wins. You go very, very small, but consistent wins every single day. Okay, daily accomplishments versus the big accomplishments. And of course, that's a whole theme too, right? There's another book called Atomic Habits. It's all about those tiny habits that if you keep building on are going to generate huge success as opposed to going for something big right at once and then it looks like it's too overwhelming. And then he talks here about psychological studies that have led to this idea of mastery. How do people become masterful at something? How do they master anything and he says that on average it requires to become a master and so there's a lot of studies on musicians on all sorts of fields they say that on average it requires a master to dedicate two hours and 45 minutes to an activity every day that's all you need to become a master in something okay so it's not just an innate talent. It's how much work are you putting in on a consistent basis, day in and day out, to achieve the result that you want to achieve. Okay, so daily, if it's known that there is this type of study that produces this type of result, then this is definitely something you want to incorporate in your daily activities. Okay, so he says you have to really plan those two first hours of your day in a very meticulous way. So think about that very well. In the next chapter, he talks about how we are made up of four empires. We are not just one dimension. We are these four big dimensions. He says everybody who's talking about motivation or who's talking about how you plan your life and perform, everybody's focused on the mindset. He says the mind is it's very important, but it's only one of the four big dimensions. You also ha have your heart set, or how well are you emotionally. You have your health set, how well are you physically, and your soul set, so that you are not attached to only the material aspect of your life. Okay? So this is where we said there are definitely undertones of that spirituality in most of his writings. And so... Finally, in chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 5, he says, 
So now you have a little bit more time in the morning. So what are you supposed to do with that? Because it's not just about having the time. If you just add more time but do the same thing you're doing the rest of the day every day, nothing is going to change. You just stress more. So what do we do with that? So he says that he he says that's what he proposes, his ingredients. 20, 20, 20. That's his recipe. So 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes. You spend an hour doing this. So he says 20 minutes to move. So 20 minutes of exercise. And of course, he talks about, as I said, the point here is not to talk about those books and their specifics. He says to dedicate 20 minutes to very intense physical activity and then 20 minutes to reflect. And this requires solitude where you can uh, center your focus and rethink on a daily basis, what are my priorities? What are my fears? What are my ambitions? And then 10 minutes of journaling. So 10 minutes of thinking and 10 minutes of writing down those thoughts. Okay, you're going to see that this is a theme that comes back again and again. And then the last 20 minutes is to grow. And to grow equals, according to him, to learn. This is what's happening when you grow. You have to have at least in the first part of your day, a time dedicated to learning. Okay, sounds familiar? I just leave it at that. Let's go to the last chapter. He talks about how it is important to prioritize your sleep. In order for all of that to function, you need to make sure that you are able to sleep well and to sleep deeply in a healthy way, which means that that last hour before your sleep is extremely important. What do you eat? What are you doing? How much screen are you looking at before you sleep? Because the if that is there's a distortion there, if you look at too many screens, you won't be able to sleep as deeply. If you eat the wrong things, you won't be able to sleep. If you sleep too late, your sleep is going to be messed up and your circadian cycle is not going to be productive. Right? So on and so forth. Another book called The Miracle Morning. Miracle Morning was written by Hal Elrod. So this is a man who was a very big salesman in a company. And then at a very young age, he went into a coma as a result of a car accident. He woke up from it, went to being healthy again. Then in two, So he started his own businesses and so on and so forth. In 2007, with the market crash, his company crashed too, and he lost everything and he had to reinvent himself. And so he became very depressive. He had very dark times, as he says. So he had to rethink his life quickly. So he went, he studied, he put his, his thoughts together, and this is his recipe. If you are in dark times, if you are going through difficulty, what do you do? So he, his result is that there are six, what he calls, timeless growth practices. There are six ingredients that, he says, have consistently produced very strong results for people who use them. So he wants to put all of these together, and when does he put them he puts them all together in the morning. And that's why his book is called The Miracle Morning. You want to change your life around? Own the morning. Okay, so the six, and I'm not going to go through a lot of uh, discussion here. The acronym that he uses is SAVERS. So SAVERS is just the acronym, S-A-V-E-R-S. -E and also at the same time, he says, these are your lifesavers. This is what's going to save your life when you are in your darkest and most difficult time. You apply these six, but this applies to anytime. The first one is silence. So this is, would be his morning routine. Okay, It has to have a moment of reflection, of silence, no, uh, uh, no distractions, no noise, right? And the metaphorical and the literal sense, no noise. You have to cut out everything so that you can focus on yourself, who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, and so on and so forth. Some people might call it meditation, whatever you want to call it. He says, silence okay there's different ways so he incorporates exercise in that too so he says you know this is a time that you exercise your body but alone without any sound so that you can focus on what you're doing and so on and so forth so silence the second one is affirmations we talked a little bit about that earlier this is your ability to tell so this is a very big thing in especially in the nlp world the neuro-linguistic programming world where they say that you know by saying things out loud you can make them into part of what you really believe about yourself. This is what you want to accomplish. This is what you want to do. Say it out loud. Don't leave it inside. Okay, so these are the affirmations. Visualization. So that's your ability to actually see very clearly the outcome that you're going after. Don't keep it at a theoretical uh, level. You have to be able to visualize it. 
as though you are there. What does it look like? How does it feel now that you've accomplished what you want to do? This is going to give you a drive throughout the day and you know, as the days go, go by, that you are there. You can actually get there. Okay, and it makes it a lot clearer for you to execute. Exercise, so we, we mentioned it quickly. So he mentions that as one of the, um, one of the uh, ingredients, one of the six uh, items. So health is needed to work better, and it increases your ability to focus and your intelligence. And he talks about the science behind it. If you have a healthy body, your brain functions a lot better. And then reading, so that's the R. So constant learning. Again, see the focus on learning, and when is it done? They all incorporate it first thing in the morning. And finally, scribing. He says, so now you have to sit after you've read and you learned. You have to summarize what you learned in a way that incorporates it into what you hope to achieve in your day and in your life. This new learning that you got, how are you going to incorporate that in your life? Okay, this is perhaps an, one of the... Uh, aspects of writing that we didn't focus on too much or explicitly when we talked about the importance of writing. Okay? So that the writing does not stay in theory. I learned something and it stays there. There has to be some sort of internalizing of what I learned into my life, into my plans, and so on and so forth. The next book. So part of the ingredients, we mentioned focus, the importance of focus. There's a book called The One Thing. It's written by Gary Keller and another man, Jay uh, Papasan. Gary Keller, for those who know a little bit of the real estate world, he is the co-founder of Keller Williams, the largest real estate company in the world, depending on how you count them. Okay, so he co-founded that company. Many would think he is extremely productive, successful businessman, so on and so forth. Eventually, he burns out. He is completely done. He can't work anymore. He is non-functional. So he needs to reassess. So he reassesses and he comes up with this recipe that he shares with the world in this book called The One Thing. What's the main point of The One Thing? The idea is that, of course, again, this is not about self-help as much as it is about business, but he's saying that this applies to the rest of our lives. The idea that if you want to be really good at your business, focus on one thing and do it really, really well. Don't diversify too far and too wide. Focus on one thing, one thing at a time. Focus on it until you can master it and produce it and maximize the, the, the benefits of it. Okay, that's the idea of focus versus multitasking. You want to be productive, focus and do not multitask. Don't be scattered. Okay. Become more, not less successful, according to him. He, he thought that he would be less successful, but he was happy with that because he was now focused on the things that really mattered. But what surprised him is that he actually became a lot more successful than he was even before by focusing on fewer things than he was focusing on before. Okay? So the how... He says, you have to be able to answer one question for yourself. And everybody has to do that. So he's saying to do that in a business sense, we could take that in life in general. He says, you have to be able to answer this one question. What is it that is going to make everything else easier or unnecessary? What's the one thing that if you could do, that thing is going to make everything else easier or not necessary? And so he gives us other ways to ask this question. What do you want people to remember you as after you die? How do you want people to know what were your biggest contributions? That's going to allow you, or at least help you, answer this question. What is that one thing that is the most important for you? That becomes your top priority. And so this means that, he says, there are no priorities. There is one priority. There's only one thing that matters, and everything else falls under that one thing. So this helps you clarify your mind, right, on how everything has to fit into one, that one thing. And so he says, therefore, this has to be reflected in what you are trying to achieve, what you're trying to produce. And so he says, we're going to put in four hours, the four most productive hours of our day, into that thing. If you do that, then you've achieved all of this. 
and he applies what is called the Pareto Principle. So that's a whole discussion that we're not having right now about what is the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 Principle, that says basically that uh, 20% of our effort produce 80% of the results. Or 80% of our, effort, uh, of our time and efforts are producing 20% of the results. There's the negative and the positive aspect of it. If we know that only 20% of our time is producing 80% of the results that we want, where is the rest of the time going? It's being scattered. It's being lost. It's not efficient. It's not productive. Okay, that's the, So you have to understand this principle in order to uh, and be happy with it because it means you don't, accept, you don't go for perfection. You accept 80% is good enough because 20% gives you 80. So then you can move on to other things that are as important. Okay, so here... He says the greatest productivity result is to focus on one thing at a time, that uh, there's a need, therefore, to cut back on multitasking in order to achieve greater results, uh, and that this is not going to uh, save time, but it's also going to decrease stress and give us a stronger sense of purpose. I'm going to go very quickly, maybe one minute each over the next few books, because I don't have time to... Uh, detail them too much. So self-motivation. One book called The Motivation Myth by Jeff Hayden. So he says that successful people are not more driven. He has a good TED talk too. Successful people are not more driven than others. He says your drive to do something comes from your success, previous success. Okay? It's not you have motivation, therefore you're going to achieve success. You have success, so that gives you hunger and momentum to want to, and therefore you become successful, and that's what gives you the motivation. So the plan here, that so that's one idea, very important, and therefore focus on that one thing. Two, the best way to do that is to find someone who's done it, that's the mentor, and we talked about direct mentorship, direct apprenticeship. What you get out of the mentor is the plan broken down into incremental steps that will allow you to give to get a success on which you can build. So the small successes are going to generate your motivation. And that is going to give you success. Okay, so we have two ingredients here. The focus and the direct apprenticeship. There's a book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success by Carol Dweck. So that book says that everyone wants to be better, but no one wants to be in a situation where they're looking like they're failing. Okay, so that's what holds people back and they don't want to uh, engage in certain things and so on and so forth. So what holds a lot of people back is that they feel or they are working from what she calls a fixed mindset. They feel like every human being has a fixed capacity. This is how much intelligence I have. This is how much IQ I have. This is how much I can handle. If this is your starting point, then you're going to fail then this means that you're not going to have a drive to continuously progress and move and evolve. Those who are const cons consistently successful and producing much higher results are the ones who have a growth mindset. They're okay with failing because they know that is necessary to continue growing. And there is no limit to how high they can go, how much they can achieve because they don't work with a fixed mindset. Okay, so this is a really good book. Uh, to really push the idea of cons consistent or continuous learning. Start with why. So that's Simon Sinek. He's very well known, huge guru in the leadership world. He wrote two books that I think go together. One of them is called Find Your Why, and the other one is uh, Start With Why. So start with why and find your why. And of course, these are business books, but they have a, com a personal component to them. The business side is that he says a company should not just be about uh, what they're trying to achieve. A company should be about why is it trying to do that. And once you do that, then you get a following and you become very successful. That's the idea. But in order to do that, you have to know for yourself at a personal level, why are you getting up in the morning? So he's talking to the leaders in the companies, but this applies to anyone. What is it that motivates you? What, is, what are you trying to achieve beyond the day-to-day -day activities? These are just means to get there. Ultimately, what is your why? What is it that is going to make you tick? And there's two, I think, very uh, interesting quotes. The first one is from Nietzsche. 
the, the philosopher, he says, he who has a why to live can bear any how. Okay? If you know your why, you're trying to achieve something, then you are able to withstand any how because you know where you, where you want to go. And the other one is from Mark Twain in your, Finding Your Why. He says the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Okay? The last book I wanted to mention was the book Drive by Danielle Pink. So in the book Drive, Danielle Pink says that the normal way of trying to motivate people is about the carrot and the stick. And that is a very limited way of motivating people, just with the carrot and the stick. What's going to make them move to the next level is going to be the internal driver. It has to be something internally driving them. So uh, in order to do that, what we're going to do is to make sure that the purpose, your purpose, your vision in life is very clear. If you were to take that in the business world, they say repeat that at every meeting. What is the purpose? What is the mission? What is the vision? Okay? But he says human beings have three main uh, drivers. All human beings have these three needs. Being autonomous, so you want to be in control of what you're doing. Achieving mastery, so constantly improving about the things they care about. And finally, purpose. They are moved by purpose. Those three things together are equal to having the motivation, the more you give those things or you take those things and do something with them, the more you're going to be motivated to achieve results. The reason I mentioned these books, first of all, we said that we're seekers of the truth. And by being seekers of the truth, we look for it wherever we find it. If there's benefit, we gather it. Secondly, and I think this is the important point here, is to allow us to appreciate our religion and the teachings of our religion to the best of our ability. Do you not see, and these, this is just a sample, for each one of them I could have mentioned five or ten more books in those fields. These are the greatest minds today in their field trying to give sincere advice to people based on thousands upon thousands of case studies. These are the bestseller books selling by the millions and these are the results. This is what they've achieved. And you see the complete alignment between these teachings and the ingredients we talked about. And they go way beyond being an effective learner. And we see that all of them have been mentioned. In fact, I would argue, mentioned in more detail in our religion 14 centuries ago. The last point is that the difference is that everything they're talking about is to achieve success in this world. And it's limited to the material success and happiness of this world. Our religion presents those teachings in a way that incorporates all of this and ensures your eternal happiness. We're not saying we don't take them, we don't look at them, we don't study from them, but we're saying that we should start at least with seeing what has our religion said about those things, and then we can find complement, we can find other things that validate even further, that uh, solidify even further what we have been saying all along in our religion. So let's stop here and inshallah next time we meet, we continue with the ingredients slash manners of learning. Uh,